There's not really a good quote for this book. Today we're reading The Seedling Stars by James Blish. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. And this book is boring. This book was like a big bowl of raisin bran. You want to start by talking about how much you love Chris Foss? I got this book a long time ago just because the cover is a Chris Foss drawing. He does a lot of sci-fi covers. This, unfortunately, I think is probably his his worst drawing <laughs> he's ever done. He he did some pretty famous ones for an edition of the Foundation trilogy and has done some others. Uh, he's most famously known for being in that documentary about Hodorowsky's Dune. He was gonna. He did a lot of the concept art for it, and then ended up doing a lot of concept art for other stuff. He's still doing concept art too. I think he worked on like Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff like that. Yeah, you can even see it. But his style, he has like very. He has very colorful ships, and they all kind of remind me of that sparkle zebra thing. Razzle dazzle. But yeah, they all kind of remind flash. me of razzle dazzle. But this one is a little red tank in a <laughs> sea of yellow it's not bad maybe if they didn't use that blue for his name it oh, would have been yeah. better of a cover is this even a scene from this book or yeah just... it's in the first story oh right right they just never right, right, right. i remember now <laughs> it's just hard to imagine because james bush never describes anything in any detail so like, we didn't really know what the tank looked like or the scenery. He just describes it as snow or or even not even that, just frozen. But I guess since we're on another planet, frozen doesn't necessarily mean frozen water or white or anything. It could mean solid yellow. Yeah. What about James Blish? <laughs> I've, I've heard of him before. Yeah, um, he's moderately famous, maybe Robert Silverberg level. Um, I think they've collaborated on something um a lesser 50s sci-fi author yeah um he was also part of the futurians which was like a group of sci-fi nerds including asimov and frederick paul um did they come up with that is this a thing i should know about um probably not i don't think there's that much to know about them it's just um just a club. Yeah, a cool club for a bunch of nerds that would get together, talk about science fiction stuff, but and then go on to be great sci-fi writers. Okay. So, apparently Surface Tension, which was the longest story, the most boring. The most boringest story in this book was apparently his most popular and That's insane. His most <laughs> anthologized story, yeah. Um, I was assuming this was some of his, like, worst stuff, but also in his career, after, you know, writing 
short stories and novels through the 40s and 50s, later in the 60s, almost all of his work was just novelizations of Star Trek episodes. He did write an original Star Trek novel, Spock Must Die, if you've heard of that one. (laughs) But uh, that's about it. So his other ones aren't original? No, he just turned that, like, from the script, turned that into... regular Star Trek episodes as a book. Yeah. He didn't write the episodes. Yeah, he He didn't write the episodes, he just made them into a book. Yes. Oh, that's really sad. I know. But both for for him, but also someone reading that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean... (laughs) It was before, you know, home video, maybe, or right when home video was expensive. So I really want to experience that episode again, but I can't get it. I'll just get this book version. (laughs) Um, Some other fun facts that you won't find on his Wikipedia page. He was a cat person, a big cat lover, had a bunch of cats. Um, He also drove a Vespa scooter. (laughs) There's some photos of him with his little Vespa helmet and goggles looking like he's on his way to meet with the rest of the Futurians. <laughs> That's about it. Okay, okay. He didn't fight in any of the wars or anything. Not a, not an interesting guy. No. Pretty boring. Okay, well, we can talk about these stories. This book is another collection of five short stories. Was there five? I only read four. Four short stories. (laughs) All with the... I was going to say loose theme, but it's not. It's a pretty tight, almost formulaic theme uh, for each one, where they're all kind of the same except for the last one. What? Even the last one is pretty closely tied. Yeah, it's pretty closely tied, but it's not the exact same story. Oh, right, right, right. three are. But, yeah, it's all... In the same kind of universe, different points in this timeline. Yeah, he was definitely trying to do uh, like Asimov's. I guess it's even it's even tighter than that. I was gonna say it's like Asimov's iRobot series, but even iRobot is there's a lot of different stuff going on. So the theme of all these stories is the idea of pantropy, which is just modifying humans to fit an environment to colonize new planets rather than trying to terraform the planet to be more earth-like i would say that's the setting oh you i think he wanted it to be the theme but he would have had to explore the theme at all (laughs) for it to be the theme it's really just the setting uh the first story seeding program it's it's they do not explore the idea at all it's so much just a backdrop it's just like a reason for people to be there sure um so what's the the first story is there's what's his name uh sweeney um sweeney has been genetically altered to live on ganymede which is incredible is that not how you pronounce it i think you got it okay Um, i don't know which is an icy wasteland. It's one of the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. Um, but he's so he's so adapted to the cold and the lack of atmosphere that he's able to survive in space for quite a long period of time. 
because they don't they don't put him in a space suit. They just drop him <laughs> on the moon. <laughs> yeah, and but he's also unable to survive in like Earth-like conditions. Also, yeah. Um, and although he has been designed to live on this planet, he's not actually part of a group colonizing it. Um, it seems like he's part of a larger program and the rest of those people who've been modified in that way have gone rogue. Yeah. He's a secret agent sent in to, to destroy this colony of people living peacefully on Ganymede. And it get it takes a long time for them to explain who these people are or why they're doing this because they're essentially just evil corporation with no we just don't care. Yeah. But apparently they're just traffic enforcement overrun. It <laughs> the backdrop for this universe is that traffic enforcement like went insane and became the most powerful entity <laughs> on the earth. Like the people who take your toll at the bridge got too powerful and then we're just trying to exacerbate all traffic problems and transportation to just collect money and tolls and because they were in control of the world government they could just make it worse and worse <laughs> and they've decided that terraforming planets is the most expensive venture they can do so somehow that'll make them the most money where they can get work orders or tax breaks or something i don't know i don't think james blish really knew either no. but uh so the traffic enforcement has created Sweeney to go destroy these people who have changed their genetic makeup to live on plants because that's too cheap of a way for humanity to move throughout the universe, which is super dumb. But it's extra dumb because it's the backdrop for all these stories. Yeah. <laughs> that's the genesis of this whole collection of stories. Yeah, these are, like, the first people to be modified, really, in this way, and so it's all new, and I think people on Earth are kind of, yeah, either trying to show that this, this can't work and, like, trying to hide the information that it is working and having people living on this moon would kind of contradict their story that it's not working, it's not viable, so I I don't remember the rest of the story <laughs> well the, that's because that's also not that's more of the story the actual story we get is sweeney's redemption where he decides to help these people on ganymede and him falling in love for the first time with uh some girl he meets there because he's been isolated for his whole life that's the act those are the plot and uh, themes of this story <laughs> This girl that he happens to meet that also happens to be his niece. I don't know why this was in here. Why was so <laughs> much of this story taken up by this whole, like, oh, we're very closely genetically related. You're my niece. Oh, oh but it's okay. Incest is fine. It's actually not a problem. Like, why did James Blish spend so many words justifying incest in this story yeah i do remember that it's because uh they're trying to um stop genetic drift or something do you remember i don't 
because I was like, why, why is this in here? But it had something to do with inbreeding was good for the way these genetically modified humans were. Just because James Blish was just jerking it while he's writing it. That's his thing. (laughs) There's not much to it or any of these stories. Um, He, they managed to solve this problem of being like 20 people against the whole United Earth Federation or whatever by faking a rebellion. They make it seem like it's a rebellion. Yeah, to buy some time and so that outside forces don't kind of get involved before they're ready to launch a bunch of ships off planet to get out of the area and colonize new moons somewhere else. Yeah, with different genetic makeups. The end. (laughs) The end. This story has a pretty good example of the weird way that James Blish writes where he kind of over explains things without that don't need to be explained at all. The example I have while Sweeney work, Mike located the main input lead for the little invisible chatterers and spliced a line into it. To this, she rigged a spring driven switch, which would snap into off as soon as the current was delivered to a solenoid, which actuated its trigger. One strand of steel wound cable went to the solenoid another to the red splash terminal on the side of the aluminum keg. She checked the thumb plunger at the other end of the cable. Everything was ready. When that plunger was pushed, the little chatterers would go off at the same moment the barrel went on. So what James Bush has just described is called a relay. Or just a relay. Well, I mean, not exactly, but that's all it... They didn't need just a switch... I pressed the switch and a little wire went to the thing. (laughs) But why, why do we get so much explanation of this thing, but we get so little of everything else? We don't even know what the, the, their environment is like. Is it snowy? Is it icy? We just know it's cold. We don't know what anything looks like. We don't even know what Sweeney is like. He's just so bland and dull, and there's just no character. Um, So I think this will probably come up in the rest of the stories also, just how it was pretty difficult to get involved in any of these stories emotionally in any way. Sweeney was particularly bad because, for some reason, James Blish wanted him to be very stoic because he spent his whole time alone. So there's a few times where he had to go on this epic journey to get a a walkie-talkie or something. And instead of describing this journey, (laughs) James Blish says, this is an epic journey, kind of like Moby Dick or some shit. (laughs) But because Sweetie doesn't know it's an epic journey, it's really not interesting and we'll just skip it. It's It's like one paragraph. And he also, he does that a few times where he just mentions other books or things. He actually says it's like Moby Dick. Wow. Not only does he mention other books, but he references things that only the reader would know that the characters in the the story wouldn't. Oh, uh, yeah. And it really brought me out of it. I guess this is actually in the next story, but there was a part where he says... 
Well, obviously none of the characters in this story have read Can't, but you, the reader, have, so it's kind of like this. <sighs> yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things in books when all the analogies and metaphors are related to things the character specifically would know about either from their time period or from their personal life that you know about through the rest of the story. And uh, this y didn't do that at no, all. No, but it, it even took it farther where it specifically pointed out that this was not relevant to the story and was just like interrupting its own story to kind of nudge you. But James Lush isn't super clever or like funny or anything. So anyway, the, the next story, The Thing in the Attic, I thought was the the best one yeah, in the group. I would definitely agree with that. I think this one was the the this one was by far the best of this collection. I was suspecting that it was going to be his most republished one cuz it has all the religious overtones and stuff. I assumed it would be really popular. I'm very surprised that it wasn't the most his most popular of these short stories. This was more of an adventure story. This one, I think, would also stand on its own without the yeah the rest of them to set the stage. You don't really need it because um, it starts off and um, the characters are all described as humans or men. But then every so often something will be thrown in where they say things like they're furless bottoms or whatever. And you realize eventually that they're... Not humans the way we know humans, but they're some kind of intelligent monkeys, like tree monkeys with tails. Um, and the world they're living in is sort of like a city built into a canopy. Um, and so things kind of unfold slowly where you're kind of discovering more and more as the story goes about what their world is like. And at the start, our protagonist monkey is getting put on trial for what religious crimes i think just heresy essentially and so there's a lot of religious words that are used like heaven and hell uh but hell is just the floor of the planet and as punishment for heresy or other crimes pe people are put into a bucket lowered down to the forest floor and left down there for a certain amount of time and no one's ever come back from that also, the, the bucket that they lower them down in is called the elevator to hell. And I feel like he really missed an opportunity to call it the hellivator. <laughs> so five heretics are outcast at the same time. And they get put down on the surface where they're really concerned about demons, which seem to just be large carnivorous lizards. Yeah, some dinosaurs. <clears throat> And they travel around trying to decide what to do, how to survive, and they're slowly picked off. Eventually, what? It comes down to there's only three of them left. Yeah. And they've had various hardships and trials. And there's a point where they eat some eggs that they find. Oh, and yeah. it's like a very pivotal point. And then they realize it was the eggs of one of the demons. And then they drop a big rock on the demon's head from a ledge. And kill it. <laughs> yep. And then they meet the giants, which are some other well, type of human. 
I guess we didn't really talk about their religion or the stuff that we do know about, which is that mm-hmm. there are giants that are going to like return and you have to follow the rules or else the giants will be mad and they have a bible kind of yeah um and these people are heretics because they don't believe in the giants or think that the giants are metaphorical in their bible the bible isn't real it's just you know stories to teach us none of this stuff makes sense uh their stories to teach us morals and stuff but then nope giants are real they come face to face with the giants and they're kind of a little bit awed and scared. Because they're just awkward scientists. <laughs> oh, here's these monkey guys we made. How you doing, monkey guys? Yeah. So these are just humans running the seeding programs who left these monkeys with their how to be human guidebook. And they did come back for them to check on how they're doing. So it turns out there's a set of goals or achievements an adapted race has to reach in order to be considered human or to uh, that they think will be successful humans. And it's always completely conquering the planet that they're on. Like driving other species into extinction. Yes. Like... You can't live in harmony with your planet. You must uh, enslave and control it. And that's what it is to be human. Yeah. At first, I was, like, not sure whether this was, like, is this, like, you know, commentary on people (laughs) being so destructive? But, like, no. (laughs) Like, James Blish just thought, like, that's how you prove that you're the best is you, like, destroy every living dinosaur and dinosaur egg on this planet until they are destroyed. Well, I... I just don't think James Blish understood the irony of it. <laughs> I think he, he thought that uh, humanity's power is to outthink and cr- create situations where he is in control and isn't in danger or have any predators or anything. And that's what it means to be a human being. But that's a pretty weak argument, especially when... The way they show it is that they smash and eat some eggs and kill a lizard. (laughs) They didn't outthink the lizard. They just threw a rock at it. They didn't make a tool or anything. Yep. They just had thumbs. Just systematically destroy those eggs. (laughs) Um, Whereas before, when they were living in the trees, they were kind of living in harmony with the planet. Yeah. They had these water pods and like they were, they worked in harmony with these flowers that they lived in or something. Seemed like they had a pretty good life up there. And that was like phase one of this program is like get established, you know, comfortably in the treetops. But yeah, phase two, mass Kill extinction. Everything. <laughs> <sighs> um, I also feel like the religious metaphor breaks down at that point. Because God is real, comes down, and he tells you, you you have to kill demons. <laughs> well, it's like, I, it's like Hellblazer or Constantine or whatever, that comic book. Uh, where just a, a priest, but you're like a priest with guns, who goes and shoots demons. <laughs> I figured you would be more upset about this because you always hate it when God is real. In any story. But, I mean, it, it 
But it wasn't gone. No, I mean, it, it, yeah, like, it's just that, oh, wait, we were just misinterpreting this religious text, which was actually there's a rational explanation, and it's part of this bigger breeding program we just didn't know about. So, eh, eh, whatever. Is it, but why would you it, set up this big religious metaphor as, a, as an author and then have it just, like, kind of float away? Just at the throw very that end. idea yeah. away. To bring in your other idea about pantropy. Yeah. And it wasn't that, like, it wasn't that science was, or rationalism or whatever, disproves God or anything. It was just, oh, this is actually just a textbook or whatever. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the story wasn't, like, amazing. It was just way better than the ones before and after it. It was the easiest to read, and it's because James actually described things. And things happened. Um, also, things are described gradually, kind of letting you kind of discover more and, like, piece things together as you read it. And then also there's actual characters. And, and it's in a relatable location. It's in a forest. There's rivers. There's big lizards. We can imagine all these things. We're not uh, just floating with all these weird names for things that aren't described in an environment that hasn't been described with people who act strangely because they're genetically different, but then not compared to anything. Whereas the characters in this were pretty, uh, human. Yeah. Uh, and, and flawed and interesting a little bit at least. Yeah. But I was going to say that the first three stories, which are very similar, all have the same characters. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's sort of the, um, scholarly, older father figure okay. type person, as in the first story with the guy who developed the genetic program. The doctor? Yeah. Or he was the son of them or something, but the doctor he goes and meets. Um, uh, the main character in this one, and then the in the next one, whatever, there's like the title for them. There's the guy who holds the, the metal plates. Right. Who, yeah. And then there's the... There's the younger person who's kind of new to the world that's a little bit more action-oriented. Right. And there's usually a tough character or sort of an antagonistic character that's still a good guy. It's like tough guy, the muscle, the meat. <laughs> and then there's um girl. Yep. <laughs> and those those four are present in all three of these stories, and they do pretty much the same things. Sometimes they're combined, where one character is both of one of those things. But it's the same characters, essentially, going through the same actions of conquering their world. Which, if it sounds boring to read the same story over and over again, you're right. And the third story was really boring. Uh, yes, by this point, I was pretty much done with the book, but this one surface tension is by far the longest it's double even triple i think the next longest one this book or this story also starts off with some regular people part of the seeding program who've landed somewhere but they're like something's damaged so they're kind of stuck there and they don't they have to come up with an adapted person to let loose on this planet, but they know they're not going to survive to get back off the planet. They're not going to be able to do anything. 
And I felt like there was a really good um, example of what you were saying earlier where he just over-explained something that didn't need this much explanation where I think it was like he was trying to explain this process of creating a new person genetically based on their own, like, genetic material. And it was like explaining all this stuff about how, yeah, this person you're making, it's not an exact copy of you. They're different. They're not, they won't have your memories. Like, they're just creating a child. They could have just explained it that way, <laughs> not bring in confusion with, like, is this a clone? Like, I don't know. People understand that children are not identical to their parents <laughs> and don't come into existence with their parents' memories. Like, and and these characters that are like doing their final actions also just sit there and talk to each other explaining every single thing that they're doing and it was like the entire setup is just discussed between two characters in the opening versus in the previous one that we just read where this exact same concept is like slowly discovered throughout the story yes it's never a deep exploration of the concept it's always just isn't it wacky they're like people but they're very different yep <laughs> <laughs> so these people are different because they're also microscopic water people yes which is in the in the prelude or the introduction or whatever, when it has the regular people discussing how they're going to seed this planet, they list a bunch of options. And James put forward the most interesting idea first and then didn't do it, which was there are these huge whales. It's a planet just covered in saltwater ocean and there's like a, a couple tiny islands with freshwater marshes. There's like tide pools or something. Yeah. Um, but most of it's saltwater ocean. And he's saying there's these giant, um, there's like some big mammals um, that eat sort of algae and stuff. Why did he not make giant whale humans? <laughs> that would be so much better. <laughs> Instead, it's microscopic humans that are fighting with amoebas <laughs> and other like stuff. Like coral. Yeah. Which is horrible. <laughs> Maybe it sounds like an interesting idea when you're thinking about it, but then having to describe the surroundings of a microscopic character, you're just floating in a void. And all the other things you interact with in a microscopic world are single-celled organisms. So even though James does imbue this weird character on some of the amoebas, where they're like stoic philosopher type things... There were, like, what, psychic, telepathic amoebas and, like... Yeah, way more than an amoeba. <laughs> but <laughs> even then, if, if James Blish was a great author or an amazing writer, I'm sure he could have told a story in this setting. But you gotta play to your strengths and weaknesses. It's just really hard for me to care when nothing is related to a human me or humanity, or Earth, or anything I have any concept of. I mean, I do. I did take biology. I have a concept of single-cell organisms, <laughs> but I didn't have to have conversations with them. Again, their like main goal here is to destroy a bunch of other predatory sea creatures. 
Yes, they have to. And, and again, it's smashing eggs. That was super weird, too. That's the secret. <laughs> James Bush is really focused on eggs. He's really into eggs. <laughs> <clears throat> but yes, uh, I mean, I don't even think there's a point in telling the plot. There's, there's a group of microscopic humans that, you know, work together to form an army to subjugate. They have to kill all the rotifers. Yeah, and... And then I think the big culminating moment is they, they build a little spaceship out of <laughs> sticks and bubbles and stuff so they can go out onto the the surface of their little uh, tide pool. To get to another tide pool. Their little yeah, where they meet other, where they meet the girl, the other humans. Yeah. And I think it's supposed to be, you know, they look up into the sky and see the sun far away and then they see the stars at night and then they imagine the scope of the universe and stuff and it's supposed to you know be inspiring to us there could be other universes or whatever you know yeah yeah but it, di- it didn't sure. do that <laughs> that was the problem is it it didn't do that that was his uh that was his goal but really because it was so boring and i didn't care about any of the characters or the world they had created it just like why try to tell a story of the the wonder and beauty of space flight or, you know, escaping Earth on this little tide pool on another planet where we've already traveled across the universe. And I don't know. It was just... Yeah, the idea is not that bad. It was just not executed particularly well. It was just so boring. (laughs) (laughs) It was so boring, I think, because the start of the story... Is from those two regular humans that explain exactly what they're doing and what they predict the outcome will be. Like you either like take that away and kind of explore the setting like they did in the previous story, or <laughs> these old sci-fi books are best when they take place close to our time or are in a world that we can understand with characters that are like related to things when they try to go too far they're just not capable of writing a compelling otherworldly or other universe thing and it just it's just boring i mean i don't know if i want to stand by that (laughs) (laughs) Um, but at least in this case his best work was when it was just a simple adventure and Man, Watershed really drives home the nail of him not being able to write about this theme. (laughs) Well, the last one, Watershed, was all right because it was like eight pages long. But it was meant to be a sort of conclusion where he sort of restates all the concepts of the other stories and then kind of wraps it all up in a bow. Yeah, like first story gives us like pantropies, a new thing, two stories about it being implemented, and then this is like the final stage. In the timeline, yes, it is a it is an end where they go back to Earth and then they put uh they have to because Earth is so destitute they have to adapt humanity to live on Earth and they're suggesting that the regular human is gonna cease to exist. And it is a conclusion in that way where there's a start with the creation of pantropy and then human gets to this point. But also, I think it was supposed to be a restatement of what post-humanism is and his ideas and themes of humanity changing and what that's like. But he doesn't really do it 
just like the whole book, he doesn't really explore the theme and just has <laughs> things happening in that setting. I don't know if you do disagree. No. <laughs> I was just going to talk about the seal men. Yes, the the heads of the seeding program end up being like large seal type people. Little flippers. Um, and the last remnants of OG humans are racist. Yes. And at this point, they've become a minority of people because there's so many adopted people. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just like guy chatting with the seal man. And it's just funny. There are some people who are the shape of seals. It's funny. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, uh, I thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to say anything else about post-humanism? Do you have additional thoughts? I, I do. I have some additional thoughts. I'm sure everyone knows about this already, but I'm just going to state it. Do it. It's almost like a genre. Uh, but there's th this idea of post-humanism. And there's a lot of stories that are post-humanist, which is essentially just what what is humanity like after humanity? And how long are you still human? So uh, a post-humanist story could be as simple as someone getting a cybernetic arm or just a, a medical eye or something. Uh, and it can be as far as this, where we genetically change a person to fit on another planet. That's called post-humanism. There's like a million... Uh, the altered carbon is... One of the major themes is post-humanism. Are they still humans when they can change bodies? When their mind is separate from the body, you can go in different bodies and right. stuff. Uh, that's that was one of the major themes. That's an exploration of posthumanism, um, and this book, if the setting is posthumanism, but he doesn't explore any of the the themes or why the topic is interesting. <laughs> like what what is it to be a human, and how many times can you change it and still be a human? Or when there are differences in humans, how do things like racism or um, prejudice come into play and, you know, uh, about the soul or, you know, if, if you're like, there's stories like Neuromancer or the matrix where your brain is in a computer and are you still a human then? And if you go into a different body, are you the same human? All these other interesting topics that you can explore. And he doesn't, <laughs> I think what he really wanted this to be because it's sort of similar in format is like like Asimov's robot stories, but for post-humanism. But Asimov explored the idea <laughs> of robots and how that would change our lives and technology and humans and, you know, some problems that would come along. And Asimov yeah. thought about it. I think he might have been able to do a better job exploring anything about what it means to be human if he had any characters that acted like humans. <laughs> Yeah. Instead of just like, humanity is all about smashing eggs. <laughs> yeah, that was his one idea, was what it means to be human is to conquer the world. Yes. But he he doesn't even explore that topic, he just states it as the truth. Number one, crush your enemies. <laughs> Number one, crush eggs. <laughs> um. he, oh, he also, but he mentions Frederick Pohl. They were part of that club together. And I was just going to butt into this re review of The Seedling Stars with a mini review 
of the book Man Plus by Frederick Pohl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is another... Uh, Surprise! <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a short science fiction book about post-humanism uh, that I read a while ago where a man is being adapted to live on Mars without space stations or anything. And it's all about all the changes they have to make and the way it's going to change uh, humanity and is he still human and all this other stuff. But it has the same problem as the seedling stars where it's focused on mainly three things. Somewhat body horror, where <laughs> he looks at his horrible body that's being made. Yeah. And it talks a little bit about the problems on Earth at the time. Problems of overpopulation and America's rising tensions with China and stuff. But what the book was actually about was just Frederick Pohl's cuckold fetish. Oh, no. It was just 200 pages of this dude being turned into a, a body mutated monster that he was so disgusted by. Uh, and his wife having sex with a bunch of other men that he knows it's happening. Oh, my God. And they spend a lot of time talking about how they, like, removed his genitals and his genitals shrinking and all this stuff. And then it spends a lot of time uh, just talking about his wife having sex with other dudes. Hmm. So, you know, if you wanted to read one of the masters of science fiction, also not explore the topic <laughs> of post-humanism, you can read Man Plus. I... I think that won a Nebula. That's insane. Yeah, best novel in 1976. That must be like some sort of, they d forgot <laughs> to give him one for Gateway and then they felt bad, so they had to give one of his other books. Yeah, wow. Because that book, it's not that badly written, but I was kind of expecting an exploration of post-humanism or just some sci-fi in general and not uh, a cuckold sex book. Hmm. Yeah, well... What would you recommend instead of this? Oh, gosh. I didn't even... I didn't think of... I don't know. It's not a genre I'm really knowledgeable about. I think I already said the main ones that I know. The Altered Carbon book, not the show, has a lot of exploration of uh, what it is to be human and not human. And I think cyberpunk in general has a lot of post-humanist stuff in it. Even though cyberpunk is kind of just... Like, cool guys doing cool things in a hard-boiled future universe. That's usually the one topic that will come up that's actually explored sometimes. Like transhumanism yeah. stuff. Yeah, there is... I'm not actually sure what the difference between transhumanism and post-humanism is. I think they're just the same, or... I think transhumanism is a, like, subset of post-humanism, where you're specifically, like, cyborg stuff... Like, technology, oh, enhancing okay. people. Uh, what about you? Well, a book I've read that really explores the themes of post-humanism is Dawn by Octavia Butler. We've both read Dawn, but I haven't read the next two books in the series. Yeah, it's part of a trilogy, the Xenogenesis trilogy. Should I... How much should I say about it? <laughs> I don't know. Are we going to do another mini-review <laughs> in this review? I feel like we could do a full episode on this book. It's one I would highly recommend. But um, just briefly, it's another story. Humans have destroyed the Earth, but a few survivors are picked up by a race of aliens that kind of their goal is to repopulate the Earth um, after kind of repairing it and preserving the 
last surviving humans, but with genetic modifications. And the group of people that have survived have a lot of different reactions to that and a lot of feelings about their humanity once they start getting modified and things like that. Um, it's also just um, post-human society, too. Right. It is, it's post-apocalyptic, but not... I wouldn't call it a post-apocalypse genre story because it's so outside of that. But it is. it does explore the themes of, you know, what what happens after human society as well as what happens after humanity. Um, of course, includes a bunch of other themes of gender and race and sexuality and all that as well. Yeah, you know, a well-written sci-fi <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah. If you're interested in post-humanism, check out Dawn, not Ceiling Stars. <laughs> okay. There's a there's a post-humanist role-playing game. Which one? Called um Oh, it's um it's called Eclipse Phase. So if if you wanted to try to explore that interesting topic <laughs> with friends <laughs> yeah. as a role-playing game. Just find out for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um I had some additional thoughts about this book. Um, so, apparently, James Blish really cared about scientific accuracy in his stories or, like... No. But so much that he would, like, call out other writers for not understanding scientific concepts. Oh, no. So, I'm just imagining James Blish, if... Twitter had been around <laughs> with the height of his career, um, calling out Robert Trollins for saying that helium would explode. <laughs> um, but the the genetic theory in this stuff is so rough, yes, and not and his weird incest thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I felt like there were some silly things, like, in surface tension, all the people they create, they all wake up as fully formed adults. They're, no one remembers their childhood. They just call it the Great Awakening. Oh, we all showed up here in existence. Like, that, that's not how cloning works. It's not no. how test tube babies work. But, uh, I don't know. It was just fine. But then apparently he just cares a lot about this stuff, so... Yeah, none of the inaccuracies really bothered me. I was bothered by that really detailed explanation of a relay and some other overly detailed explanations of things that didn't need to be there, but only because he refused to explain other things. But I guess knowing that he cared about scientific accuracy really... Yeah, he um, published critiques in, like, fanzines and oh, stuff. God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway did he write hard sci-fi because this is this is very soft sci-fi eh, i don't know i guess you couldn't notice by looking at the titles so. yeah well who do you think this book is for gosh it's really boring and i don't think it's really for sci-fi fans because usually when i read sci-fi i expect i expect some sort of story but more i expect an idea being presented and then explored. Like an idea of spaceflight or the idea of colonization or something to be explored and thought about. Or then I can finish the book and lay in bed and think about these topics. So it's definitely not for me. Maybe 
uh, James Bush fans <laughs> want to go back. It's the same as the Robert Trowlins thing. Just someone wants to go back and read some garbage. Uh, Wait, was it Robert Trowlins or? Yeah, he wrote Cosmosoids. No, 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 I was thinking of. Uh, oh, Robert Silverberg. Robert Silverberg, yeah. I think this might also be for fans of, say, like, Ray Bradbury. I felt like while reading this, it was kind of similar to some of his short stories. But maybe I'm just not a Bradbury fan. These felt like stories that you'd be forced to read for a class. And then you talk about the ideas which are brought up but not actually explored in the book. Or, like, I don't know. Well, he definitely writes in the style of all those people. and He sounds like Asimov. And he sounds like Ray Bradbury. He has the same style. Yeah, if you love the style of Bradbury and Asimov. <laughs> which is really funny. Because they have no style and no one reads them for their style. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then this book might be for you. Wow, if you're just just a bland human if you love starting your day with a big bowl of raisin bran <laughs> yeah that's kind of what asimov is like but usually i think about things but it's, <laughs> it is like chewing on some thoughtful raisin bran like it's not bad it's probably good for you but well i mean it's not the worst raisin, thing raisin bran this isn't a perfect analogy anymore raisin bran is pretty good for you <laughs> I don't know. This episode wasn't very funny because the book is so boring. It's a boring episode for a boring book. <sighs> if you'd like to join us next time, we're reading Silver Glass, Web of Wind by J.F. Rifkin. I'm looking forward to this one. Looking forward to taking boobs on this cover in the bathroom. <laughs> right after we're done. <laughs>